Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to another episode of the Comrade Cast. And uh, I actually ended up not necessarily skipping last week's episode. Uh, the thing is, I actually recorded an episode last week, but I felt like it wasn't really up to snuff, wasn't really up to standard. And ultimately, I decided that I wasn't going to produce it. Instead, this week, I'm going to take a, another attempt at the topic and try and explain it a little bit more coherently. There was definitely an issue last week that I was feeling quite sick, but I still soldiered on for an episode anyway, and it ended up coming out very, I think, disjointed and unclear. Ultimately, I decided that I wasn't going to publish it. Today, we are going to be talking about an issue which is sweeping over my nation of Canada and has been playing in the United States for quite some time and continues to simmer to this day. That is, what is the school's role in terms of educating students about the existence of LGBTQ plus people? And what is the school's role in regards to a student who might be questioning their gender or sexual identity? And the big thing today that I really want to do is not necessarily, this is not an episode where I want to spend a bunch of time like dunking on the right or anything like that. What I want to do with this episode is have a place where what the left is trying to achieve with a lot of these things, where our thinking is, what we're actually hoping to accomplish. I want to actually plainly and clearly articulate that for a lot of people because there is a great deal of misconceptions out there in terms of what left-wing people are actually trying to achieve. And I also want to talk about as a parent myself, what I think the role of the education system is in our current modern day 21st century society, what are red lines that I think, what the role of teachers should be, when does a student-teacher relationship start to really cross that line. I want to talk about all those things and where exactly I see the red line being as someone also who is a far-left person. I want to make sure I'm articulating my position as a left-wing person who has a family. Because one thing that when it comes to people on the right will, if you're a left-wing person, will not even begin to take you seriously unless you have a family yourself. It's this weird thing, even though um, there are many people on the right who uh, espouse family values but do not have families themselves. Yet, for whatever reason, they are taken seriously. Because the first thing uh, people on the right will always do when you try and talk about these issues is that they'll be like, well, you're not a parent, so you don't understand. Well, guess what? But I am a parent, so I do understand. So I'm hoping we can have maybe a more nuanced discussion, try and drain away some of that culture war bullshit. Let us see how successful I will be. The first thing that I want to make clear is that while right now, both in Canada and the United States, we are having these types of debates around what teachers role in what type of pronouns to use for their students and so on and so forth. So the first thing I want to get clear is that there are two different things happening in the United States and Canada in reference to this argument about, about teachers roles and more broadly, the educational system's role. In Canada, what's happening right now is that they are having a debate around whether or not a teacher can use a student's preferred pronoun without that student first getting their parental consent. That is the very big discussions happening right here in Canada, right now in Canada. And we're gonna delve into that a little bit. Whereas in the United States, what's happening is you're getting a lot more discussions about pulling books out of library, banning books in library because they contain LGBTQ plus content. That is not happening here in Canada yet, at least. Who knows if it, maybe it'll get to that point. But right now, our discussion here within Canada specifically is about whether or not a, a teacher has a role in using a student's preferred pronouns or do they need to wait for the parents to be on board before they can use them. And we're going to go in depth on both of these issues. 
But first, we're going to start with my home nation of Canada and talk about what started this whole discussion off. And it's been simmering under the surface and has really come to a head over the last month and few weeks. So if you will join me on our big, beautiful Google Earth maps here, we can see the country, the country, wow, fail. We can see the province of New Brunswick, a tiny little province in Atlantic Canada. I believe only has a population of around a million people, might actually be less than that. Yeah, population less than a million people, 831,000 people. So, tiny province. Anyway, this little province here, a couple months ago, really got in the news and made some headlines as the premier of the province made some changes to the school's policy in regards to a teacher's role in using a student's preferred pronouns. So let's go a little bit into exactly what happened. We have a uh, CBC overview. This is from June 27, 2023. So uh, <laughs> this guy here, this is uh, Blaine Higgs. He is the current premier of New Brunswick. In any case, let's jump into exactly what he says. So effectively, under the New Brunswick education standards, there was a policy, policy 713. And in this original policy, as it says here, it allows students to be referred to by their preferred pronouns and names without involving their parents. Teachers had to get consent from the students before sharing that information with their family. And then this became a source of controversy because pigs runs the Progressive Conservative Party in New Brunswick, obviously a conservative government. This policy led to some issues within his own base, eventually resulting in him changing it. The policy changed earlier this summer to no longer make it mandatory to use preferred pronouns of students under 16. The main thing here is that it goes a little bit deeper. A student who refuses parental involvement would be referred to a school psychologist or social worker to develop a plan to inform the student's parents if and when they're ready to do so. But what the educate but the education minister, Bill Horgan, gave kind of contradictory messages. He said that it is now forbidden to respect the chosen name and pronoun of a student under 16, even uh, informally or verbally without parental consent. He said teachers need to wait for that referral process to play out. However, that's not explicitly stated in the policy. There's like a lot of gray area, which definitely is not a good thing, particularly when you're dealing with something as controversial as this. Leaving gray areas is, is just a recipe for total disaster. So under the way the bill is written here in New Brunswick, the, the teacher, if a student, for example, comes to them and says, hey, I prefer that you use these pronouns and use this name with me, well, the teacher can't really do that. But in this circumstance, what they don't need to do is actually go ahead and tell the parents. They're not required to tell the parents that information. They're just required to go with whatever the parents know their pronouns and name to be. Instead, the teacher does is refer them to a school psychologist who comes up with a plan to tell the parents. I personally, I hate that idea of coming up with a plan to tell the parents if and when they're ready. But what I do like is like a teacher providing resources to a student who might be questioning their gender or sexual identity. I don't think it's really the role of the teacher to be the counselor as well, right? We'll get more into what I think the role of a teacher is in a student-teacher setting. And generally speaking, I really don't think that we want our teachers to also be the student's counselors. We have a different subsection for that. We have a different person who takes care of that. And I don't think it's fair to really force a teacher into a position where they might have to be a student's counselor as well. Though then again, like I said, this is not what's happening here. Usually it's just when a student asks a teacher to use their preferred name and pronouns, the teacher before basically had to do it. And then it changed to, it was on a voluntary basis. And now we're hearing that, no, actually you have to go with what the parents want. There's a, a lot of, there, there's a lot of gray area here, un, a lot of areas that are unclear and uncertain which again is a disaster when you're trying to draft legislation like this. But let's move on from New Brunswick to 
the next province in Canada which has brought up this issue and has gone a little bit further uh, than our friendly folks in New Brunswick. Welcome to Saskatchewan, the province next door to mine and the province which is the easiest province in the world to draw, considering it's just a giant rectangle. So anyway, over in Saskatchewan, they have another conservative premier in charge, fellow by the name of Scott Moe. What is true what they say, right? That a person with two first names is inherently untrustworthy. Scott Moe is the leader of the Saskatchewan party, again, a conservative party that has been firmly placed in uh, the province for a good, I think, what, 20 years now, maybe more. Saskatchewan decided that they looked over at what New Brunswick was doing and they thought, you know what, I like that. What we're going to do is we are going to copy that. And they copied that bill word for word. One thing here that's not clear is that the new rules are effectively the same. Students must get parental consent to change their names and pronouns at school. So in this case, right, the teacher is actually taken out of the ball game entirely. It's basically if a student wants to change their name and pronouns, they're going to have to talk to their parents. And I think they have to like get some paperwork and then they take it to the teacher and then the teacher can use the name and pronouns of the student's choice. The one thing I was trying to figure out here exactly is does the teacher have a role once if a student has to be referred to in a certain way, does the teacher actually have a role to then phone up the parents and say, hey, your son or daughter asked to be referred to by these name and pronouns. I just thought I'd let you know, click, just be, that would be a weird conversation to have. Okay. So it looks like teachers are required to tell the parents if a student asked to have their uh, name and pronouns changed. Yes. It does look like they do officially go one step further than in New Brunswick and they required the teacher to inform the parents. I'd hate to make any compromises at this kind of position, but I do think that this can definitely put a teacher in a very awkward position. And personally, I, I think that the best, the, the best policy is to go on a volunteer basis for the teacher, right? The teacher can choose to use that student's uh, name or pronouns. If asked, they can choose not to. The big thing, right? But the big thing that really disturbs me about this conversation would be the teachers actually having to be forced to phone the parents and talk to them and have that super weird conversation. That to me, I've been talking about, I don't think it's the, the teacher's uh, job to be a student's counselor or anything like that. This to me is going more in the opposite way, right? Now, all of a sudden the teacher is getting involved in the kid's personal life with the parents on a personal level. That to me is definitely a line a teacher shouldn't be forced to cross, in my opinion. So anyway, before I delve into that, the last thing I want to touch on here is that uh, Scott Moe, pictured in this, pictured here, is saying that he will use the notwithstanding clause if the federal government tries to crack down on Saskatchewan for making these educational changes. There are already plans for various groups within Saskatchewan to challenge this as, as unconstitutional under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But what Mo has said is that he is ready to use the notwithstanding clause in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms if necessary. Which, talk about something completely ridiculous. But let me give you guys a little bit of context. If you guys aren't familiar with the Canadian Constitution, most of you guys listening to the show are Canadian. But let me give you guys something. It'll probably make you laugh, especially if you're American, about the notwithstanding clause in the Canadian Constitution. So I know people will yell at me and be like, Charter of Rights and Freedoms is not the Constitution. Um, whatever. Like there, it says part of the Constitution of Canada, right? Uh, yeah, I do tend to use the terms interchangeably. I think that they are going to suit our purposes. Fair enough for now. But anyway, it is officially Section 33 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms which is part of the Constitution of Canada, is commonly known as the notwithstanding clause and or sometimes referred to as the override power as it allows the parliament or provincial legislatures to, to temporarily override sections of the tart of the tartar, <laughs> sections of the charter, which are section two and then seven through 17. 
the Parliament of Canada or a provincial legislature or territorial legislature may declare that one of its laws or part of its laws are temporary, notwithstanding, i.e. countermanding sections of the Charter, thereby nullifying any judicial review overriding the Charter protections for a limited period of time. What a provincial government can do is if they are trying to enact a law which might be contradictory to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, they can use this notwithstanding clause and say, you know what, we are temporarily suspending this law from review by the Supreme Court of Canada and effectively nullifying the power that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms has over that province. So to put this in American terms, it would be like there's a clause within the American Constitution that if a state just wants to say, you know what, all the parts, because by and large, the American Constitution doesn't favor the federal government, but it does have specific parts within it outlined for the federal government. A state could say, you know what, we don't really want to abide by these federally mandated aspects of the U.S. Constitution. We're going to use the notwithstanding clause. And then we can put a shield around, right, the laws that we want to pass and make them invulnerable to a constitutional challenge. It's completely ridiculous. And the only reason that this exists basically was to try and coax Quebec into signing on to the Constitution and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which they still have not done, right? Well, the second biggest province within Canada still has not signed on to its Constitution. Anyway, it's a joke. That's the notwithstanding clause. Before we go into the United States, let's talk about this law specifically. Let's talk about why people on the left are highly against a lot of these laws, which would um, basically force the teacher to uh, alert the parents what the student wants, what uh, pronouns they're asking for, what chosen name they're asking for. The reason people on the left argue so vehemently against this is because this whole policy really exists for a single scenario one very specific scenario a person which unfortunately exists all too often in our society so what scenario is this this is a scenario where you have a kid who's questioning their gender identity who's questioning their sexual identity is living in a unsupportive household they're living with parents who are maybe very socially conservative, really against the idea that they might have a child who is gay or trans or anything like that, and simply won't offer them the support that they need within the family household. This whole policy exists to give that child at least some sort of recognition or normalcy or a place where someone will refer to them by the way that they want to be referred to without having to worry about what their parents will think or what their parents will do or so on and so forth. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of someone who might be a, a young student in high school questioning their gender identity, questioning their sexual identity, but has parents at home that know they won't support them. And right, kids aren't stupid. They know if their parents are going to support them or not. I can say, I, maybe not 100%, right, but I'm very confident that if I had grown up trans, if I had grown up gay, my parents would be there to support me 100%, no matter what. Not everybody has that luxury. Not everybody has the ability to say that about their parents. I know that I could have had that conversation with my parents if I needed to. And a kid is going to know they cannot have that conversation with their parents if their parents are not going to support them. They're going to be able to figure that out pretty quickly. And of course, kids aren't stupid, so they're now going to know that if they live in a place like Saskatchewan, for example, if they tell their teacher what name and pronouns they prefer, they now know that the teacher is going to effectively be forced to rat them out. <laughs> You're going to phone home, be like, hey, little Timmy's using different pronouns and a different name. I thought you might want to know, right? And then parents on the other end are going to be, oh, really? Well, that's news to us type of thing. It's a very interesting uh, thing for you to say, click. And then who the hell knows 
what's going to be waiting for that kid when they get home. Knowing this, the kid is just in response going to, again, bottle up who they are, not just at home, but now at school. And effectively, they're never going to get a chance really to be themselves. And I think that's a pretty shitty situation to be in, to put it mildly. And I always ask conservatives this question, which is, what is the alternative for this person, right? If they're denied support at their home, denied support at their school, what <laughs> are you just hoping like this person just takes their identity and shoves it down deep down inside them? as deep as it can go, and hopefully maybe that they'll forget about it type of thing. The evidence shows that does not happen. Usually they'll just say something like, well, when they're 18, then they can leave and do whatever they want. And I don't know, I just feel like to have them endure years of potential abuse at the hands of their parents might not be the best solution. For someone like me, I fear this legislation. Not at all, in fact. I was going to say very little, but even that is an overstatement. Because my hope is that as my children continue to grow up, I can establish the kind of relationship with them that if they are questioning their gender identity or their sexual orientation, they can actually feel comfortable talking to their father about it and knowing that their father isn't going to judge them or belittle them. In fact, that their father will be there to support them with whatever they might need. If it gets to a point where my kids are telling their teachers that they have different names and pronouns that they prefer to be called with than at home, then I feel like I will have failed as a parent. Because if someone is questioning their gender identity, there's going to be a lot of signs leading up to that long before they go to their teachers and tell them their uh, preferred pronouns and name. If you already have a strong relationship with your kid, I really don't think you need to worry about this kind of legislation on any level. And there's another huge misconception here that somehow the state or the school is like trying to enforce a specific gender identity or sexual orientation on children. That is highly ludicrous. And of course, Sometimes this notion is spread to left-wing people more broadly. Left-wing people have absolutely no interest in having the state enforce a sexual orientation on anyone, enforcing gender identity on anyone. I'm sure as hell not going to be forcing my kids to try and be gay or non-binary or anything along those lines. This is a totally ridiculous conception of reality. It's about if later in life they find out that they are gay, they are trans, they are non-binary, they understand that their parents are going to be there for them. And in the highly likely event that they are not, then they understand that these people exist and they should be treated with respect and dignity in society to me. And that's really all that it boils down to me for my kids. I have read about some people, this is usually like, this is like one of those celebrity things and this pisses me off because this is not something like a normal human being can ever really afford to do in their lives. Like you'll hear about like celebrities trying to raise their kids as non-binary or in a gender neutral environment and stuff like that. It's like that, hey, that's ridiculous. I think that is definitely going to cause a lot more harm than good and B. The only people who could actually afford to do something like that are people who have a lot of time and money on their hands anyway. And the reason I say that's going to cause more harm than good is because everybody on the left knows that you are far more likely to identify with the gender that you were assigned with birth and that you are far more likely to be straight and so on and so forth. So when it comes to my kids, I'm going to play the odds. I'm going to play the odds that the chances are between 97 and 99% that they will conform with the gender that they're assigned with at birth. I'm going to roll those dice and treat my daughter as a daughter until she gives me indications or shows me some signs that this might not be the case. And obviously, should that scenario arise, 
up to me to understand that this situation has drastically changed. That is to say, I'm going to treat my children. They are likely going to be, as we like to say, on the left heteronormative until proven otherwise. Because the thing that people on the right just don't seem to understand is that it's never been about enforcing an identity for someone. It's never been about making sure that everyone is gay or everyone is trans or, or whatever else. It's about ensuring those people in society that are gay, that are trans, people who up until very recently have lived on the margins and fringes of society, that these people are now brought into our society, are brought into our political structure at large and given the same rights as everyone else. Because this is a fundamental core value for left-wing political philosophy, which is to expand the base of rights to everybody effectively, right? And that over time, that expansion has grown and grown and grown and grown, right? At first, you know, we were living in societies where nobody had political power. And then it was like landowning men. And then it was just men. And then it was women. And then it was people of color. And then it was LGBTQ plus people. And now we're in a society where the big battle is trying to bring trans people into that sphere of political rights along with everybody else. It's not about enforcing an identity on anybody. It's about letting people understand that there is no superior identity, that whatever you happen to be in life, that's okay. That includes being just a regular average person, someone who is just a regular heteronormative person. That's okay too, where there does start to be a question of what's going wrong is if you use your numerical strength in society to start oppressing people on the margins. That's where people on the left start to get uh, a little bit frustrated. Just so my position is clear, I am very much so against these changes. The one thing, though, is I do want to talk about what the role of a teacher might be in this scenario facing a student who is asking them to use pronouns and a name which is different from that of their parents. Where is the line? What should the teacher be doing? And one thing I feel like people don't really understand about the education system is like the education system is stretched thin as it is. I, I'm very worried about the future of our educational system. I'm not going to lie with you guys. I feel like we simply don't have uh, the resources teachers need to succeed in their jobs these days. And I see their job as educating students about um, the world around them, effectively. That's really it. It's not to make judgment calls about uh, what's right or what's wrong. Of course, a, a teacher's role uh, can be to introduce students to new ideas and new concepts and share the fact that these concepts exist. But obviously, it's not their place to say, you know what, this is right and this is wrong and you have to believe this or not believe that. I definitely feel that if a teacher moves into those kind of definitive judgment calls, particularly in like a educational setting, you have crossed a line, in my opinion. And that is with the exception of things that are illegal, right? I think we can all agree, right? A teacher telling a student murder is bad because murder is illegal. We're okay with that. I hope we're all okay with that. But yeah, outside of legal activity, teachers shouldn't be making judgment calls to their students. They should be introducing them to new ideas and concepts that exist in the world. And then, of course, letting the student then make up their own minds and start to discover them on their own time. But for me, the really big issue here is that I don't like forcing teachers into this role where now they have to be counselors and protectors of students who may be coming from an abusive household. Of course, we need to find a way to get support to this person who's in an abusive situation, I just don't think it's the role of the teacher to be that direct support, right? The role of the teacher is to be educating students, not being their counselor or their confidant or anything along those lines. Those kind of considerations definitely fall into the role of a school counselor 
and potentially more broadly in the role of the healthcare system by and large. I personally believe that obviously that not only being Canadian and being a socialist, that healthcare should be universal, but I also believe that part of that universal component needs to be a strong emphasis on mental health and mental health care and having a support system within the healthcare system to help uh, at-risk youth, um, people who might not have support at home, being able to get that support to them within the healthcare system to me is completely reasonable. In fact, much more ideal than seeking it within the already stretched educational system. Ideally, you would have a schooled counselor that maybe not necessarily is exclusively there for helping students navigate complex issues around their own gender and sexual identity, someone who's actually trained to deal with these issues, who's obviously very knowledgeable and whose basically job is to get these students that need support and also to help them uh, through their own difficult and turbulent questions in life. So for me personally, I think that using a student's you know, preferred name and pronouns should be on a volunteer basis for the teacher. I'm going to assume that 99% of the time, the teacher wanting to be polite and supportive will use that student's preferred name and pronouns, but they shouldn't feel like they are forced into it no matter what. I just think if you have this sort of a potential legal stick over teachers' heads at any time, I think that kind of creates a atmosphere of fear, and that's really what the right is doing right now. And I have no intention of creating a atmosphere of fear for teachers. And of course, the teachers should definitely not be phoning the parents and telling them that, hey, your uh, kid is using different pronouns and names at school. To me, that is a huge violation of a student-teacher relationship. All of a sudden, you're entering that uh, student's personal life and involving their parents. And I see that as a huge red line. And I don't know how people on the right don't see that as a very obvious red line for a teacher to be getting involved in, P in a student's personal life like that. But obviously, I think that is completely ridiculous. And ideally, ideally, <laughs> the teacher in that circumstance could then say, I'm on your side. I'm here to support your little belly. But I can't really be that kind of support system and counselor that you need. We have these resources within the school system. You should go talk to the trained professionals whose job it is to talk about and help students through considerations like these. But before we move into the States, I do want to just talk a little bit about other red lines that I can see between a student and a teacher. One of the big ones we talked about, right, was that a teacher telling a student what's right or wrong, making those kind of judgment calls, I think is a big no-go. And while this is predominantly a right-wing delusion and right-wing fantasy, anytime a teacher would be potentially forcing or trying to guide a questioning student towards a certain outcome in regards to their gender or sexual identity, whether that be gay or straight, I think that is a huge red line and obviously something teachers should not be doing. Though I have really found no evidence that teachers are actually doing this. Another thing that I wish, and obviously that this is not something that teachers do usually, although I will say when I was in university, a lot of my uh, university professors would just state their political biases, particularly because I took a lot of uh, political science classes. So they would state their political biases, usually at the start of the class. And I wish that more teachers would just state their political biases. I'm completely fine with that. I am more than happy to tell you guys my biases, because when I tell you guys my biases, not only do I try my best to work around them, um, but also once you guys know where I stand, you too can work around my biases as well, right? You understand what outlook I might be looking at the world through, and you can make your own adjustments accordingly. Let's take an example. Say my kids go into school and the teacher comes out and says, you know what? Hey guys, I'm a really conservative person. I'm socially conservative and economically conservative. These are my politics. This is how I view the world. I would be perfectly okay with that because that teacher is 
letting everybody know what their biases are up front. And like I said, you can now work around them from there. Where I would have much bigger issues is if this socially conservative teacher was very obviously leaning socially conservative in a political sense and was like trying to pretend that they didn't. I think that can happen sometimes with teachers. And in that sense, I am sympathetic to more right-leaning people in that case. Because that is one of my biggest pet peeves is when someone's trying to hide the ball on their political beliefs. It drives me crazy. I'd rather just people be upfront with what they believe and then we can all go from there. So I've no problem with a teacher being biased. It's this, we're never going to get unbiased teachers to, to do this or to try and uh, achieve this is ridiculous. Just in the same sense, we're never going to get unbiased journalists or scientists or anything else. We have people who are biased and try their best to mitigate and work around those biases. So that's where I stand with teachers in regards to this question, right? I think it is definitely a very complicated and nuanced question that deserves some real thought and consideration. Because guess what? Life is very messy. And for a lot of people, we don't always grow up in the most ideal circumstances and don't always have access to the support systems that we need. Let's move on to the United States here, where in the United States, we are having a different political debate, which has different types of considerations. Right now, particularly in Florida is obviously the big one being headed up by Ron DeSantis. We have a lot of discussion about pulling books from school libraries, which have access to LGBTQ plus related material in them. And or the big thing is sexually explicit material is being pulled off of shelves, pulled off of library shelves. I personally think it's not anywhere controversial in saying that any kind of graphic depictions of sex, violence, that kind of thing should be definitely pulled from school libraries. That includes maybe cartoon adaptations, right? Even if it's a cartoon, like a cartoon having sex or whatever in the book, right? I think that's, that's reasonable pull from the shelves. Hopefully that's something we can agree on, but the conservatives and Republicans are delving into a really big gray area here. We're going to get into that as we continue our discussion. But one of the most interesting things that I personally noticed when talking about this issue with a lot of people is there is actually a pretty big generational divide, particularly between millennials and Gen Xers on this one. And this picture here, I put in millennials versus Gen X, the ultimate war. This is what the AIR gave me. I'm like, oh, it's pretty cool. It's a cool image. But anyway, so that's just what's in the background here. So I feel like when I talk to people about this, there is a huge generational gap that has emerged. So, right, I'm a millennial in my early 30s, and I talk to people who are in the Gen X demographic maybe in their mid forties, late forties, early fifties type of thing. And they have a very different outlook on this whole books in the library type of question. And the reason for this generational divide, I think is very simple. The internet people on the Gen X spectrum seem to be extremely concerned about this issue, about what books are going in the school library. People who are in the millennial demographic are much less concerned. And I'll tell you why. Before I think about what it must have been like to go to school before the internet was widely available. And I only have very brief memories of it, like elementary school. But by the time I was even early elementary school, I can have vague recollections of what life was like before the internet. But by the time I had reached sort of grade three, grade four, the internet was very prevalent in our lives. And it was clear that it was going to only get more prevalent as time was going on. Obviously, before that time, and you were going to school, the only place or the best place or whatever you want to say to get information would be from the school library. So I can imagine that those people in that kind of older demographic probably spent a lot of time in the school library. Uh, when they were growing up and when they were kids. I personally, when I was in high school, fair, spent very little time in the school library. The only time I remember really spending, and particularly like the high school library, 
it was like during free period when there wasn't really anything else to do, right? Everyone else was in class. Maybe you're one of the handful of kids that had your free period or whatever. So you might go to the library and when you go to the library, you really aren't checking out books. You're hanging out with your friends. When I was in high school, the Nintendo DS was like really big. So I'd go to the fucking library and play my DS during free period and shit like that. For me, the library is a place to hang out. Whereas again, for them, it's probably more of a serious, actual information broker type of thing. So I take a lot of these conversations about what's going in the school library a lot less seriously because I don't think that kids are going to be that different from my time when they spent almost no time in the library. And if they did, they certainly weren't checking out books. They were playing their games. They're on their phone. They're basically doing anything else except checking out books. And here's the thing. Those kids, their phones, they have access to the internet. And in an instant, they can go and look up anything on the internet that is going to be exponentially worse than whatever kind of genderqueer book that you're upset about type of thing. Instead of spending all their time trying to hunt down that raunchy book that they heard their parents complaining about in the school library, they are probably just going to look it up on the phones, check it out there, and then from there probably go down to even more sort of ridiculous things that they can search. Another thing, like when I talk to conservatives about this, it's I'm on board with you guys. Let's get any kind of graphic depictions of sex and violence out of school libraries. Even like I said, I'm willing to compromise cartoon depictions, right? Illustrated depictions. We can get those out too. But what, what are you going to do about the fact that your kid has access to the internet? Okay. And through that access to the internet, they're going to be able to access all kinds of information you would want them to access far quicker and far easier than they would through the school library. What do we do about the fact that the real area where your kids are going to see things that are really going to mess them up and or things you wouldn't exactly be enthused from a parental perspective of your kids viewing, all of that is going to come from the internet. That's not going to come from the school library. And you can say that you will monitor or control your kid's internet access. That's fine. I intend not to control my kid's internet access, but I am going to monitor it. Even then, right, the likelihood of your kid finding something that contravenes your ideas is not going to come from the school library. It's going to come from them going over to their friend's house who actually has unfettered access to the internet. And now they're on the internet doing whatever they want, despite your best efforts to control their surfing habits. And then on top of that, I think there's another uh, generational divide between millennials and Gen Xers on this issue. And that is when I've talked to people who are Gen X and we've had a few beers and we're talking about our past lives and things we've done as kids and whatnot. One subject that comes up was like the first girl you ever did it with and stuff like that and when you lost your virginity and so on and so forth and one thing in that moment that always shocks people who are older than me was when i tell them at what age i lost my virginity at although when i have a similar conversation with people who are in my age demographic who are millennials they don't blink at all they don't care it's not um at all shocking or unusual to them whatsoever oh man i feel like i shouldn't go down this road but they're already down here fuck whatever um so i lost my virginity at 14 to my middle school girlfriend and again when i talk to people in that kind of gen x demographic they're like whoa shocking but again for more younger guys millennial guys it's yeah I lost it at 14, I lost it at 15, I lost it at 13 type of thing. And I think that people in that older demographic really haven't clicked in terms of kids are getting together at a younger age than they used to at their time. So with that, there's like a push to educate people about sexual contact and that kind of stuff at a younger age because people are getting sexually active at younger ages. And I even remember um, 
Maybe some of you guys remember this too, if you're around the same age as I am, grew up in North America. But I remember they would play these public service announcements when I was a kid. It was like about, and I, so maybe this was only British Columbia or something like that, but I think the government was pushing to basically lower the age that kids would get sexual education at schools. And they were putting out like ads. And I, again, I can't remember if it was the government or what exactly entity was putting out these ads, but they're putting out these public service announcements that were basically like, you think that it's okay to teach your kid about sex at 16, but just so you know, the people out there who want to take advantage of your kid are already talking to your kid about sex at age 10. And of course, right, it zoomed in, <laughs> there's this image, it's like, if I remember right, it's totally dark, grassy field, and there's like a guy in a trench coat talking to this 10-year-old kid, right, cringe, 90s fucking public service announcement, over-the-top kind of stuff. But I do remember as a kid, there was this push to lower the age in which kids were taught sexual education, and the reason this was, the reason they argue for this is because people who are trying to take advantage of kids are going to, are starting at a young age. So you need to be educating them about sex basically. So they don't get taken advantage of. So anyway, I think a generational divide that made it so that people in my generation were, were sexually active at a younger age than those in the Gen X generation was again, because of the internet. I remember fucking MSN messenger and sending messages to my middle school girlfriend at all times of the night. Right. And this was a huge advantage over a phone in my opinion, because with the phone, there was always like a time limit, right? You had to be cognizant of other people want to use the phone. Right. And there was always like a gatekeeper. If you phone, you like, you hope that you get, <laughs> you'd hope that you get your girlfriend, but maybe you get her dad or something like that. And you have to like do small talk or some bullshit. Now with messenger changed everything, right? Cause you can basically talk as long as you want all times of the night, you can think about your responses. And of course it's a lot easier to do all those cringy fucking flirty things you do as a 14 year old, 15 year old kid. When you have that barrier of text versus actually trying to say it. Plus, right, the whole, oh, my girl goes to another school is actually a real thing back in my day. Because, again, the internet, right? If you were dating someone who went to another school, it was a lot easier to keep in contact with them and talk to them and maintain a relationship than it would have been back in the day. So where am I going with all this rambling? Well, what I'm trying to say is that I think that for people in like the Gen X generations and above, they really haven't come to terms with the fact that, in my opinion, it's predominantly due to the internet. This has allowed people to become sexually active with one another at a younger age than they were able to back in the 80s or 70s or in ancient history before then. So I definitely think there's a, a difference in how much weight people put politically into this issue, depending on your generation. Because I am not that concerned about what is in the school library. I'm much more concerned about what is out there on the internet. And I'm sure as you guys have all grown up in the internet age, probably most of the fucked up things you've seen in your lifetime have come from seeing it somewhere on the internet. So when it comes to protecting my kids from that kind of violent and sexual imagery, I'm going to invest my energy in much more fruitful areas, which is again, monitoring your internet access rather than trying to have battles with the school librarian over which titles are available in the back corner. So before we move into the next layer of the library issue, I do want to come back to one thing that I mentioned before that, well, I can get on board with, let's take out our graphic and illustrative depictions of violence and sex and illegal activities from our school libraries, that kind of red line that we are getting to right now, in my opinion, is where now Republicans and conservatives are trying to ban books which have written 
depictions of maybe gay sex or LGBTQ plus themes and things along those lines. And I think we can all agree that is a hugely slippery slope to go down because now you are banning the written word effectively. Now you're banning words that you don't like. It's one thing to agree upon actual illustrated and or real pictures of something of graphic or upsetting nature. But the fact is that when you're reading something that's written down, it's entirely different, right? You're not actually seeing what's happening. Your brain is basically creating vague images of what's happening on the page inside your head. You're not actually seeing what's happening. You're not actually seeing a depiction of what's going on. Of course, now you open the door to all kinds of potential banning, right? There are all kinds of sex acts and violent acts that are written about in books, which I read one of the quintessential, right? They didn't teach us here in Canada. They didn't make us read All Quiet on the Western Front. They made us read Generals Die in Bed. It's a World War I novel from the Canadian perspective, right? And that's a pretty violent novel that I read as a young kid. It has obviously violent depictions of war including close combat where the narrator literally guts a German soldier with a bayonet and cuts him open type of thing. Now, if we had a book that had a picture of World War I soldier, even if it was like black and white and grainy, actually cutting and gutting a, a German, I can say that's over the line, right? But again, a, a written depiction, I think, is an entirely different story. And I, I hope that people can agree, like, uh, when it comes to banning the written word, I think we're getting into a very dangerous territory. In terms of banning like written books, the only things I could really get on board with would be things that give you information on like how to do illegal things. Like, and these are usually probably banned in not just school libraries, hopefully, but libraries at large, right? Something like the Anarchist Cookbook, which uh, teaches you how to you know make uh, IEDs and other explosive devices. Or maybe something like a book that teaches you how to hotwire cars or something like that. We can ban that because that's teaching people how to do illegal activity. One of the books that has been making the rounds, particularly in the United States, is this one here. All, bo uh, all boys aren't blue. Move it over just a touch, so you can see the cover. But yeah, this is one that's really in the Republican sites right now. If you guys aren't aware, this is very viral clip of a Louisiana senator. John Kennedy reading an excerpt. Let's get actually a good picture of him there. And what a what a what a handsome young chap he is. But in any case, yeah, we have this viral clip where he's reading this excerpt from that book, and it's it's fucking hilarious because it's like it's he's describing a you know, basically a gay sex scene in his memoir about growing up as a gay black man. And he's, he's reading it out loud, right? And it's just hysterical watching him go through this rendition of this novel, completely uncomfortable. But if you listen to the way these guys talk about this book, they talk about it like it's some kind of manual teaching people how to have gay sex. But no, it's just a person's life story and memoir about what it's like to grow up both being gay and black. And at that point, you want to ban this book. Um, you're banning someone's life story effectively. And I've seen some people like make like claims. It's like, then why put so much detail? Listen, guys, when you guys write your own life memoirs, you are free to put as much or as little detail into the uh, parts of your life as you want to. I think we can all grant people the freedom to be as descriptive as they want with their own life memoirs. If this was actually what the conservatives say it is, and it's an actual manual, like how to have gay sex, I can definitely be like, okay, we can take that one out of the school library, especially, right, if it has pictures. And uh, this book, I believe, doesn't have any pictures outside of a few pictures of the author and his family and stuff like that. So I'm absolutely fine with them having that book in a high school library, let's say, not in an elementary school library, not in a middle school library, high school library, I think it's totally reasonable, totally fine for that book to be in there. I'm, another reason I'm also totally fine with this book being in like a high school library 
is because again, because it's not, there's not like pictures or illustrations, right? You have to take this book and you like have to actually read it to find the part that they're talking about, right? So you actually have to sit and look and flip through it, try and find that part. And I, I really don't think most kids are going to do that. The only reason a kid might actually pick up that book is if they are questioning their gender identity and they might want to read about somebody who had a similar life experience or walked a similar path to them. I'm sympathetic to if, for example, there was a book in the school library that had some pretty raunchy and nasty pictures. I think that, yeah, a lot of kids would go and check it out and go and look at pictures type of thing, especially if that made the rounds around the school. If it's a book that they actually have to read to find the parts in question, I really don't think that many kids are going to really go down that road. Now back to what I was saying before I got sidetracked. I want to go to the deeper layer on this library issue. And I guess the whole deeper layer on what is the school's role in terms of teaching students about LGBTQ plus issues. Because there's a real line here that gets conflated all of the time. For example, you may try to deny your kids from knowing about the fact that gay people exist, that trans people exist, but eventually, sooner or later, they are, they are going to run into those people in their real lives. So while I guess you as a parent have a right to try and shield your kids from the existence of gay people as long as you can, sooner or later, they are going to be confronted with reality. And one of the things that all the time gets conflated by conservatives is basically telling people about the reality that gay people exist, that trans people exist, and that they deserve the same respect as everybody else. And I personally believe that a 21st century school system has a role in teaching students and kids that, again, gay people exist trans people exist. These people are out there. Where the line is, and this is the reasonable line that, again, I hope we can all agree on, is when there may be an entity that is heavily pushing a student towards identifying with one group or another, trying to guide and manage them and persuade them into one camp is 100%, 100% over the line, 100% unreasonable, absolutely fire the teachers, stop them from doing that kind of shit. But there's a huge difference between telling somebody that something exists and encouraging that person to become that thing or identify with that thing or go down that path. Not to use a hockey or sports metaphor, right? Here in Edmonton, obviously, Connor McJesus, we love the Oilers. And over back in my previous province of British Columbia, the Canucks are the team that everybody loves. I have no problem with my friends back in BC or mid dad or whatever, introducing my kids to the fact that the Canucks exist and that they're a hockey team or a good hockey team that they cheer for, but then actively trying to pull them away from the Oilers camp into the Canucks camp. Can't have it. I know I'm being a little silly here, but I'm, I'm trying to explain to you guys what I mean that just telling somebody that something exists is not necessarily promoting it to them or telling them to go down that path or anything along those lines. For many years, I did not know that Luxembourg existed and was a real country. But when somebody introduced me to the existence of Luxembourg, that doesn't mean I was suddenly drawn to become Luxembourgian and, and really go ham wild with the country. So yeah, I don't think that uh, school necessarily, elementary school, maybe not even middle school, but certainly high school can start talking about, uh, it can start talking about LGBTQ plus people, uh, about the issues they might face in society, about the history that they've had. The one thing, right, obviously there's a teacher or like we mentioned, some sort of like manual in the school library explicitly telling students this is people who are gay have sex and this is how you put on the strap on and really 
telling them how to do everything in graphic detail. That's obviously way over the line and completely unacceptable. When I had sex ed back in my day, obviously there was no discussion about LGBTQ plus issues whatsoever, but obviously they were able to discuss sexual ed to us without actually telling us explicitly how everything operated down there and everything you needed to do when the rubber meets the road. One of the things I've always hated is this notion that apparently you can't talk about the existence of gay people without automatically sexualizing it. I can talk about the existence of my wife and I's relationship to our young children without sexualizing it, right? We've talked about this on the show many times before, that there are many aspects of any relationship and we can easily share the non-sexual aspects of a relationship with our children while still keeping that aspect completely behind locked doors until, of course, the appropriate time. Anyway, once again, we are running quite long with this episode, and I do want to do a feel-good story today, so I am going to end uh, our discussion here. Again, I, I, it still ended up being a fairly meandering uh, episode, but it was definitely a lot more focused than the last one. I just hope that one of the things that I really want to have around these issues is more nuanced, more fulfilling discussions about them because there are some complicated issues that we got to hash out. And if we are going to politicize everything about them, that's not going to benefit anybody at all. And I hope that I made the left-wing position very clear on this issue which is that it's not about taking anybody's children or brainwashing or indoctrination or any of that scary crap that they tell you. It's about trying to make sure that people who might not have the support at home can get it from somewhere else in society, that there are still safety structures and safety nets outside the home system for those people. While the home, of course, does provide a lot for us, it cannot and should not be, I think, expected to provide everything for someone. So now on to our feel-good story. And this is one, it came out, I don't know, I think maybe two or three weeks ago, maybe a month ago. This one, this article in specific is from September 16th, although I do believe that I read about it earlier than that. Essentially, that NASA came out and they made this big announcement. So they published the results of this uh, experimental probe they sent to Mars. And this whole uh, probe's job was to suck out the trace uh, elements of oxygen within Mars's atmosphere because it does have oxygen, but I believe it makes up less than 1% uh, of the total gas within Mars's atmosphere. Not exactly breathable. What this little thing does is basically it just sits there and it like sucks out all the oxygen out of the air around it. And then of course stores it for consumption, later consumption by hopefully humans or some other life form. Well, let's read into some of these details here. An experiment that took place on Mars has shown that it is feasible to extract breathable oxygen from the thin Martian atmosphere. From its little home in the belly of NASA's Perseverance rover, this briefcase-sized Mars Oxygen In-Suite Resource Utilization Experiment, MOXIE, has been repeatedly breaking apart molecules in Mars air to generate a small but steady supply of oxygen. And now MOXIE is getting set to retire after a job well done. MOXIE's impressive performance shows us that it's feasible to extract oxygen from Mars's atmosphere, oxygen that could help us supply breathable air on a rocket or propellant for future astronauts, says NASA's Deputy Administrator Pam Milroy. Developing technologies that let us use resources on the Moon and Mars is critical to building long-term lunar presence and creating robust lunar economies and allowing us to support initial, an initial human exploration campaign to Mars. The MOXIE experiment designed by MIT scientists has been running on the since the Perseverance landed on Mars in February 2021. Not continuously, operators here on Earth have sent commands to MOXIE to see how it runs under different Martian conditions, 
Since then, over 16 runs, Moxie has produced a total of 122 grams of oxygen. That, NASA says, is about enough to keep a small dog breathing for 10 hours or human for four. It works through electrosis using a current to drive electrochemical breakdown of carbon dioxide into its constituent atoms. Moxie draws in Martian air and then pulls it through a filter that scrubs it clean. This purified Mars air is then compressed, heated, and sent through a solid oxide electrolyzer. The electrolyzer splits the carbon dioxide into carbon monoxide and oxygen ions. The carbon monoxide is then vented, but the oxygen atoms are recombined into O2 or molecular oxygen, the kind we need to survive. Even in its worst case, a device such as Moxie would be able to supplement other supplies of oxygen, reducing the amount of cargo needed to be ferried from Earth. But with what they have learned from Moxie, researchers under physicist and Moxie principal investigator Michael Hirscht of MIT believe they can develop a full-scale system including a new and improved version of the oxygen extracting device, a means to liquefy the gas and a way to store it. Future Martian explorers are going to need all the help they can get in being self-sufficient between the breathing requirements of a team of astronauts living on Mars for a year and the liquid propellant needed to power a spacecraft. Some 500 metric tons of oxygen are going to be needed. It's a shit ton of oxygen. It's going to have to wait, though. There are many problems that need to be tested and solved before humans can attempt to stay on the red planet. Oxygen is just one of them. We have to make decisions about what things need to be validated on Mars, Hirsch says. I think there are many technologies on the list, and I am pleased to say that Moxie was the first. So there you go, guys. Very cool little experiment I wanted to share with you guys, just showing that we are slowly but surely inching our way towards Mars. I hope it's going, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a reality within our lifetimes, but we shall see. I remember they were saying 2020 is when we're going to get to Mars, but it doesn't seem like we're any closer than we were in 2010. That being said, though, I love the idea of something like this that is able to essentially extract oxygen from the thin Martian atmosphere and I use it for the people living on planet, of course. And obviously, like they said, they're going to need to have more and more stuff like this as possible. I haven't played Starfield yet, but apparently one of the big things in that game is everything. All the food is shipped in chunks or in squares. I imagine that they're going to need to figure out ways to break everything down into squares or whatnot. But I don't think we're quite there yet. I don't think our chunking technology is quite at the level we can sustain human life on Mars quite yet, but hopefully we will get there. In any case, I'm going to end this episode for now. I'm getting quite hungry and it's been going on for way too long. So with that, I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been the Comrade signing off for now. And until next time, you guys take care.